listening to you talk about the Swinnertons um, uh, and their kind of artistic, I suppose, marriage and being inspired by each other in Italy and living there. It just made me think of the De Morgans, even William, and so kind of the parallels. I hadn't thought about that before between those two kind of marriages. But anyway, um, now I want to focus on Manchester Art Gallery. So on their website, Manchester Art Gallery describes itself as the original useful museum Initiated in 1823 by artists with the help of merchants and industrialists, it was considered an educational institution with a social purpose to ensure that the city and all its people grow with creativity, imagination, health and productivity. It's a direct quote. Um, originally created as the Royal Manchester Institution for the Promotion of Literature, Science and the Arts, both Annie and Isabel, uh, who were both born in 1844, began exhibiting in 1870s. So what were their, those, these two artists' relationship to the gallery during their lifetime? Um, how, would it have, how would this gallery sort of evolved um, from the last half of the 19th century and onwards? Yes, well, this is sort of quite difficult. This, of course, there's no documentary evidence at all about anything that either Isabel or Annie thought about anything. But mm. one can't uh, help but imagine that in the early years, they must have been extremely exasperated with the gallery uh, to which mm. the Manchester Academy of Fine Arts was attached. I mean, mm. I, I doubt that there were very few women artists that were uh, included, um, you know, in their collection. And uh, but but then moving on, I mean, how pleased they must have been when in uh, 1923, Annie was given the accolade of a exhibition in the gallery. Mm. And of course, Isabel ensured that her portrait by Annie uh, was left to the gallery. And Annie in her will left uh, 500 pounds to gallery. Oh, wow. And uh, <laughs> some of the money, I may say, seems to have been spent on uh, two um, uh, paintings by two male artists, but I'm not quite sure about that. But certainly yeah. some of the money um, did go into a grant that was offered to a promising young artist. And the first one went to a woman's student at the Manchester School of Art um, in order to allow her to study sculpture in London and Paris. Now that, imagine, was very would have pleased Annie very much to know mm. that uh, her efforts were going to help uh, another young woman. Yeah, so you mentioned, um, Elizabeth, about the 1923 exhibition of um, Annie Swinnerton's work at Manchester Art Gallery. So there have been three exhibitions dedicated solely to Annie's work. Um, the first mm. one, as she said, was 1923. Um, so why? Um, how, was, how was her artwork presented? What were the themes of the exhibition? Why did she get this sort of solo exhibition of her work in 1923? Well Yes, well, the first one in 1923, I think, must have been as a result of the fact that the previous year uh, she'd been elected an associate mm -hmm. member of the Royal Academy, uh, the first woman to uh, get this uh, accolade since the 18th century. Though even then it was, you know, not entirely straightforward because it turned out that she was slightly too old, um, and she was now in her early 70s, to be able to uh, take part in any of the voting uh, that uh, members were entitled to. So it was very much just really an honorary title, but still a, a lot was made of, of it. And people did say, you know, <laughs> about time too, that a woman should be given um, mm, uh, yeah. the country. Yeah. And the exhibition ran uh, at Manchester Art Gallery, ran from um, 
June to August uh, 1923, so a really reasonable length of time in, in the summer. And there were 59 of her paintings on display and um, five sculptures by her husband. I'm sure she uh, was very pleased about that. And mm. most of them um, were lent by individuals. I mean, there weren't many uh, paintings of hers at this time in public collections. Um, there were some, but not all that many. And mm. of uh, the, uh, <clears throat> these individuals, one of them was Louisa Garrett, who had been Louisa Wilkinson. And then the other was a very interesting woman called Mrs. Mary Hunter, who was a sister of Ethel Smythe. And, um, oh, wow. uh, and she was a very uh, volatile, interesting woman. She uh, was very close, how close, I don't know, with uh, uh, Rodin, who did a, a bust mm. of her, and um, was certainly one of Annie Swinnerton's patrons, or as you might say, a matron, the matronage. Um, mm. So between them, Louisa Garrett and Mary Hunter actually supplied... 15 of the 59 paintings that were on display. So it was about a quarter of the total. So mm. I think that's interesting uh, the way it was done. And the review of the exhibition um, in the Manchester Guardian stressed the vitality of her work. I mean, the power, brilliance, those are the kind of words that were used. And they thought the painting Oreads was the finest picture in the exhibition. And this mm. was a group of... Uh, nymphs, uh, very robust nudes that had been presented to the Tate by John Singer Sargent in 1922. Mm. And um, both this and the then the 2018 exhibition, um, which um, took place uh, um, in the uh, Votes for Women's Centenary year, uh, mm. showed Swinnerton excelling in a range of genres. So there are portraits, there are landscapes, uh, as well as mythological and allegorical works. And I um, mean, it's really interesting when you see them all together because they show the influence of uh, not only the Pre-Raphaelites, because uh, uh, there was always a, a mention, uh, in, certainly in the early years, that she was influenced by Byrne Jones, um, but also the Impressionists and the Symbolists, because of course she was... Um, working over a long period of time and it would have been uh, rather odd if she hadn't been uh, influenced by seeing you know work of her contemporaries mm. so I think she was able to um, you know take uh, what she wanted from all these other schools mm. and uh, women certainly were a theme in both these exhibitions um, I mean both women as Italian peasants, and then as Millicent Fawcett, she was in both exhibitions. Mm. And um, in the um, 2018 exhibition, the subtitle was Light and Hope, um, and it sort of foregrounded the influence of the sun, the southern sun, on her work. Mm. And uh, certainly uh, we know that uh, she preferred to work in the open air, and there's rather touching... Uh, photographs of her in old age, by which time she'd retired south to Hailing Island, um, right down off Hampshire, uh, where she had a bungalow. And so it was warm and she could paint outdoors. I mean, this was in her 80s. 
Um, now, this other exhibition, the third one, was held at Manchester City Art Gallery in 1924, and mm. it was of portraits, but I can find absolutely no information about it. There doesn't seem to be a catalogue, and it doesn't seem to have attracted any press reviews, at least not in, not even in the Manchester Guardian, who mm. you'd have thought would have, so I, I really yeah. don't know. But anyway, there's a, there's a topic for research for somebody. Yeah, thank you. That's yeah, an interesting mystery to uncover. I love your use as well of the word matronage, not patronage, because I think so often we use work like patronage without just thinking about, you know, the derivation of the word. So thank you. I love that. Um, so you've mentioned the 2018 retrospective of Swinnerton's work with the subtitle Light and Hope. This exhibition also includes work by Dacre. So how did Manchester Art Gallery come to acquire quite a significant collection of Dacre and Swinnerton's work? Yes, well, I mean, this is again something that's always interests me. I'm, I'm always keen to know how things come to be mm, as they are. Me too. And uh, at the time of the 1923 exhibition in Manchester, the only painting by Swinnerton that was actually held by the City Art Gallery was her portrait, a very early portrait of, his, of uh, the Reverend William Gaskell, who was Elizabeth Gaskell's husband, who was mm. a Unitarian minister in Manchester, which had been commissioned by his daughters and they eventually gave it um, to the uh, City Art Gallery. So that was why that was there. But uh, it was only in the decade after the 1923 exhibition that um, the uh, gallery really increased its holding of um, Swinnerton's portraits and paintings. And that was um, specifically because or particularly because they've been uh, paintings that were left to them by members of the Garrett Circle. And mm. 10 uh, paintings can be construed as representing a deliberate move by her friends to ensure that Swinnerton's work was placed in the public domain in her hometown. And uh, as I mentioned before, Isabel Dacre bequeathed um, the portrait that Annie had done of her um, to the gallery. But... Um, mm. Louisa Garrett specified in her will in the mid-1930s that six of Annie Swinnerton's paintings um, uh, were to be um, offered to Manchester and they were all accepted. I mean, I always think it's such a shame when people offer things to galleries and quite often they, they turn them down. Um, mm. But in addition, in her will, uh, two other of Annie's paintings that she held jointly with her sister Fanny, um, she she bequeathed her interest in the paintings to her sister on the understanding that they should be offered uh, to Manchester. And in fact, Fanny obviously took them down off the walls and gave them to Manchester in 1936. She wasn't to die for another oh, 15 or so years, but uh, mm. she honoured uh, the bequest that uh, her sister had uh, suggested. Thus, eight of the paintings um, uh, that... Uh, came directly to the Manchester Gallery through, through the friendship that Annie Swinnerton had forged with the Wilkins sisters, Wilkinson sisters in the 1870s. And then the last of the artist's paintings acquired as, um, by Manchester uh, was left to the gallery by a woman called Dr Jane Walker, who was a very close friend of the Garrett's. And uh, she left it as part of a larger bequest um, and... Uh, this was an Italian landscape. Uh, so again, that's another uh, instance of the matronage. 
Mm. But she did. Uh, Annie Swinnerton also had patronage, as I mentioned, uh, John Singer Sargent, who championed her cause um, with the Royal Academy. And he was influential in getting the Chantry bequest, which was um, a facility of the Tate to select works by her. Uh, for instance, New Risen Hope in 1924 and the convalescent in 1929. And also Annie Swinton, I mean, she was friendly with Pruraphalites, with Edward, uh, with Burne Jones, uh, to whom she'd been introduced by um, uh, Mrs. Gaskell's daughters, and mm. also with Holman Hunt, and also with George Clausen. So she obviously networked well. She, I mean, she was an interesting, from all the little snippets of biographical information from contemporaries at the time she was obviously quite formidable she was outspoken quite sharp um mm. and um you know no nonsense um and i think you know there's one uh, relation of joseph's who was a younger niece i suppose who's um rather um unpleasant about her thinking you know she was very ugly and and uh, rude uh, but uh, she obviously appealed to other artists who, who uh, were quite able to uh, mm. deal with outspoken women mm. yeah that's often the charge I think that women just for voicing their opinion are often kind of given that label that men aren't um I, I think it's really interesting as well that I know oftentimes galleries are given things you know bequested things or donated from wills but it seems with women artists particularly that seems to be the way in the past they came into collections instead of being actively you know bought by curators in the past you know by predominantly male curators it seems that that was the way they you know came into being collections which I'm always interested in the women artists themselves or um, like you said, their patrons or matrons kind of, or friends of theirs giving things to galleries more so than them, yeah, the galleries themselves actively buying them. Um, but yeah, you mentioned as well, on this really cold day, it's nice to hear more about Italy, the warmth of Italy, um, and that both Annie and Isabel, so both Swinnerton and Dacca, uh, Daker, sorry, I'm trying to remember how to pronounce her name correctly, and um, they both travelled extensively to Italy, um, and both artists exhibited internationally. So as well as in the UK, they exhibited in France. So how was their work received internationally? Well, Dan, because I don't think that, in fact, they did actually exhibit much abroad. Um, mm. Although um, Annie spent all that time living in Rome, I've, mm. I haven't come across any instance of her exhibiting in, uh, in Italy. I mean, she seems to have sent um, all the paintings back um, to England. And the only instances I can find in 1881, Isabel did uh, exhibit at the Paris Salon. And this is interesting because it's the portrait of Madame F. W. Now, of course, who was this? I have no idea. But of course, my immediately think Fanny Wilkinson, but I have no idea who whom Madame F. W. was. I mean, it's obviously Madame just because it's in France. So I don't know whether it be Miss or Mrs. But anyway, I don't know what that painting is or where it is. But in 1905, um, Annie Swinnerton uh, did have a triumph in that her Marta Triumphalis, which is a um, great painting, I, I think, uh, was exhibited in Paris. It had um, been in London years before, but... Um, this time uh, it, it was very well received, so much so that it remained in France and is now in the Musée d'Orsay. 
Um, so, um, but it's surprising that I've been able to find uh, uh, so little um, uh, mm. evidence of them exhibiting abroad. Um, they were certainly were inspired by uh, um, the art of the Renaissance and um, yeah. So you mentioned the, um, you know, the inspiration of the Italian Renaissance and you mentioned before Edward Byrne-Jones, who really greatly admired Annie's work. So how does um, Annie and Isabel's kind of work fit into contemporary art movements, particularly I'm thinking of obviously of Paraphyllitism because this is a Paraphyllite podcast, but just kind of more generally, how do you feel that their work kind of fits into the contemporary movements of their time? Well, as I say, art critics in the 1880s definitely mentioned, I mean, specifically the influence of Burne Jones and mm. um, uh, who we know. Um, and her paintings of the 1880s, there's one called Italian Mother and Child. And there's another lovely one called Through the, well, one of its titles, it seems a variety of titles, is Through the Orchard, which is a, a young woman carrying a child um, with a background of uh, uh, leafy blossoms and that ha has a very pre-Raphaelite feel. But as I said before, I, I think her style really was eclectic and uh, that over time, over her long career, she combined uh, the aestheticism of Whistler, the naturalism of Clausen, uh, which is the, the painting, The Dreamer, um, which was painted on the Isle of Man. That's a very sort of Clausen sort of feel about it. And then elements of symbolism. And all through it, uh, her work was uh, applauded, um, whichever style you might think it was influenced um, by, uh, for its colour and vitality. Those are the main things, really, that uh, mm -hmm. uh, seem to grab people. Yeah, and um, I'm really interested. I've been doing kind of research into women artists' kind of depiction of the nude, and I was really mm. struck by and interested in Annie Swinnerton's, who's quite known for um, a number of depictions of nude uh, female figures. And it struck me how kind of political the depiction of the nude figure is, particularly the female nude figure. So I immediately springs to mind the famous kind of suffragette slashing of the Rockaby Venus in the National Gallery in London, um, which is a nude female figure depicted by a male artist. So why do you think um, Annie Swinnerton was kind of drawn to depicting the nude as a female artist? Well, one thing uh, in her favour was that, of course, she had been trained uh, to draw nude models and was there for... Yeah confident of painting nudes mm. uh, and by no means all uh, female contemporary artists were um, and although it wasn't uh, it still wasn't considered appropriate um, for women uh, artists to uh, exhibit uh, nudes um, uh, she certainly wasn't inhibited for this and her nudes aren't idealized at all really um, most of them are very robust and sensuous and yeah. as such were admired by Sargent and Rodin and mm -hmm. the first one that was um, on display is the Cupid and Psyche so that's a male and a female I mean presumably both were um, drawn from uh, uh, living models um, mm -hmm. it is of course an allegory but uh, and that mm. caused a real stir when it was exhibited in London at the New Gallery, although mm. uh, now it does seem uh, quite restrained, really. The, the female is uh, very um, smooth and, well, mm. in fact, she, she was criticised at the time for her big feet or lumpy or swollen feet or something. I can't 
actually <laughs> see this myself. But anyway, but, but the next uh, one, it, uh, which, as I say, I really like, is um, was done in 1892. It's called Meta Triumphalis and is very much more demonstrative. And this is a stunning, luxurious nude sort of leaning back. And uh, um, it's um, I think it's it's lovely. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've also um, particularly uh, intrigued by the way she incorporated later on, this is uh, female nude into her more symbolist pictures. And there's one, uh, Montagna Mia, my mountain mine, uh, which was painted about 19... 19- 1923 mm. which is uh, a woman um, uh, is sort of she's part of the earth she's a formation of a mountain I mean so I think it's amazing and that was left to the um, Manchester City Art Gallery she left it to the Manchester City Art Gallery and it was included mm. in the 19 uh, 2018 exhibition and uh, anyway yes so that really gets to the heart of it I think uh, mm. New Orleans Mountain part of the very formation of the earth the one or two others there's one called the soul's journey which sort of has woman as mountain but I don't think it's as effective as uh, um, Montagna Mia. Yeah I think yeah definitely and I agree like I think it's really evocative her demonstrating um the training that she'd had in life studies, and especially a male nude, even more shocking for a female artist at the time. So, yeah, it's fascinating. Yes. And I mean, some of the others she did, uh, the, the, particularly with water, there's, uh, no, which I can't remember called, but it's called Oriads, or, 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 I think it's called. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, anyway, it's a, a, a woman, a very uh, uh, stocky uh, woman, uh, big breasts coming out of the water and the water is very um uh tactile i mean you could feel it sort of sparkling in the sunlight anyway that's uh, extremely robust i mean it'd be really yeah. interesting. first when i first saw it i thought well no i don't think i like that very much but the more i look at it uh, the more i do like it and i mean that's another thing i would say about painting in italy i mean she was doing uh these in italy that uh she did do a lot of landscapes all around uh, Rome, um, and mm. particularly out uh, there's a, a late late Nemi um, uh, outside Melbourne Hills, and it's thought that she went there to study the water just to catch it exactly as it would fall. So I mean, it really you can feel it the the heat of the sun on the water as it sparkles. Yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah, wonderful. Um, and talking about uh, another aspect of Annie Swinnerton's paintings, so in both her paintings, Illusions and the Sense of Sight, among actually others of her works, but for me it appears that she seems to be looking towards or carving out a better, more optimistic future for women in society through this art. They kind of remind me of some paintings by Evelyn de Morgan, who was herself involved in the women's suffrage movement. So would you agree, what do you think Swinnerton is trying to convey with these kind of artworks of kind of women in their power and taking up space? And especially with, I think the armour as well is also really evocative. Yes. Um, well, it, it's always difficult to to know yes. one can read things in. And of course, you know, so concerned <laughs> this time with her connection with suffrage I mean it interests me there is a letter that she wrote quite late about uh, it was to Liverpool uh, 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 the Walker Art Gallery I think uh, curator about the sense of sight um, Mm. saying telling him that it had actually been bought 
I mean, it was an expensive painting um, by uh, a man who was actually losing his sight. And oh, that wow. was why he'd uh, wanted it. And she said, but I, I wrote to him, she says in this letter, I wrote to him and told him what I had in mind. <laughs> but of course, we don't have that letter and she didn't oh, tell no. me. So oh, no. we were that near to know. But uh, I mean, it's... Uh, at uh, the sort of conventional level, it was supposedly the first of a series of four paintings of the senses. And um, but and even there the are two versions of it. And one of them uh, was for a long time known as the Angel of the Annunciation. So, you, you mm. know, because the figure has got wings and she's looking up. I mean, is she looking to the future and uh, when women are going to be freer or not uh, or um Anyway, the, the viewer's attention is certainly drawn to the woman's eyes. I mean, they're mm. so clear, so limpid, so blue. Mm -hmm. she, she did a yeah. thing about blue eyes. She did blue eyes and children as well. And uh, these eyes are searching the heavens. Or, is it the heavens or the future? Or, you know, you, you could read anything into them, really. Mm. And illusions, um, that eight, Sense of Sight was 1895 and Illusions is 1902, so just a little later. And this was actually owned by Louisa Garrett, who gave it to Manchester. Mm -hmm. And it shows a young girl in armour. I mean, most unwarlike. It was quite extraordinary. And I think the, the young girl does look like um, another young girl that she did portraits of in Elizabeth Williamson, uh, mm -hmm. who was uh, Mrs Hunter's... Um, granddaughter though I haven't actually worked out whether the dates would work I'm not sure but anyway if it if it isn't her looks very like her uh, mm. perhaps perhaps it was a sort of genre but uh, yes what is this armor for uh, and this little girl I mean it's been said to protect her illusions uh, again uh, I don't know and these piercing blue eyes looking into the future mm. that, um, quite evocative um, and of course um, Yes, the armor appears in other in other paintings. There's one of a, um, a sort of angel in armor with a, a with a boy. I'm not sure whether that is. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's her Joan of Arc. Yes, I think it's in a collection. Again, with the uh, a very stocky country um, Joan of Arc in her armor, but and looking upwards. I think uh, mm. heavens. Mm. Yes, um, and both um, Dacre and Swinnerton kind of uh, now moving on to talking about their portraits. So they both produce portraits of activists involved with the women's movement. Um, and you've mentioned before Dacre's uh, portrait of Lydia Becker and Swinnerton's of Dame Millicent Fawcett. So how did um, perhaps these the po women's politics inspire these artworks? Um, what does these what do the portraits convey about their sitters and how were these representations of women different maybe to contemporary depictions or similar of their male peers? Anyway, certainly uh, Swinnerton's portraits of women such as that of Isabel and of Millicent Fawcett are mm. a very real women. Uh, they're not mm. idealised in any way. Um, yes. As I mentioned, the one of Millicent was probably done when uh, Millicent was in her mid-60s, and it's not reluctant to clearly show lines on her face. I mean, she's sort of rather homely looking with crinkly, smiley lines, rather than frowning at uh, the great blows that the government's striking at her. But um, she was uh, actually recognised. I mean, I've, I've seen a review of 
picture at the time uh, was recognized as being uh, quotes a real human being so the fact that even a critic would would mention this is interesting mm. in fact there's another version of uh, this uh, portrait of Millicent Fawcett which had uh, um, disappeared for a while but I um, I came aware that in the autumn that it was for sale and I alerted Parliament so there's a hope that it might join that collection mm. um, and uh, anyway that would be good if um, it was in the public domain there um, mm. and uh, we've mentioned the one of Lydia Becker I mean it's no uh, certainly not idealized uh, but um, she shows her as a real woman rather than uh, a caricature mm -hmm. or a harridan or anything and in fact, Millicent was painted by a man wearing the same academic dress um, as uh, Millicent. Uh, it, it was to, right at the end of her life. And um, I, I don't know, I suppose I'm not sure whether it was a likeness. It doesn't look, I mean, certainly not as impressive as uh, Swinnerton's one, but perhaps... Uh, Melissa, no, I don't think she had aged in that way. I don't think it's a terribly good portrait, in fact. Mm. <laughs> so I think Swinnerton's <laughs> portrait is better than the, the male one. Yeah, mm. yeah and um, I wondered actually, um, to kind of maybe nuance the suffrage movement for a second, for maybe people that don't know, um, obviously we've talked about um, Millicent Fawcett, the leader of the NUWSS, the suffragist movement, as opposed to another artist we're going to move on to briefly talk about, Sylvia Pankhurst, who was associated with the more kind of recent militant action of the WSPU suffragette. So I just wondered if you could briefly kind of talk about the difference there. Yes. Well, um, as you say, the NUWSS, which was National Union of Women's uh, suffrage societies that mm. was the con constitutional movement that had started in Manchester um, mm. well in back in well and London back in the um, 1860s mm. um, and uh, that eventually became to be led by Millicent Fawcett and they um, believed that they would manage to get women the vote by uh, pressurizing uh, the government uh, through political means um, mm -hmm. whereas Mrs Pankhurst's Women's Social and Political Union the suffragettes had been founded in 1903 because they were tired of this uh, uh, slow pro process and thought that mm -hmm. perhaps by uh, being more militant uh, and militancy was never really defined it just grew in fact I mean originally mm -hmm. it was just heckling uh, male politicians that have ended up in uh, violent disturbances, uh, as we'll uh, learn in, in a bit. Um, mm. And artists, um, many artists created propaganda for the suffrage cause. And in fact, the ma majority of these belong to the constitutional wing. Mm. And uh, there was they had a society called the Artist Suffrage League, which produced posters and cartoons and postcards and designed banners and even their magnificent processions. Mm. And uh, then there was another group called the Suffrage Atelier, which was <clears throat> more crafts uh, rather than fine art. And uh, that, that group was prepared to work for both the constitutionalists and the militants. Um, 
the group led by uh, Mrs. Pankhurst, but both mm -hmm. uh, Swinerton and Dacre were really at heart <coughs> non-militants, I think. Mm. Yes. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for um, kind of nuancing that, Elizabeth. I was actually, um, just as a side note, um, I very kindly for my 30th birthday, my mum bought me from from you <laughs> a lovely little side plate, um, uh, which Sylvia Pankhurst with the um, WSPU uh, beautiful angel symbol on it, which I treasure um, forever. <laughs> so, yeah, it's really interesting the way that both kind of movements marketed themselves and kind of were uh, sort of, in, well, were in charge of their own kind of image as opposed to like you said the caricatures and the way that the press was often trying to depict them um so at the time of the Swinerton exhibition at Manchester Art Gallery in 2018 I was kind of wandering through and came across in another gallery uh, an exhibition of work by Sylvia Pankhurst and in your fantastic recent book Art and Suffrage a biographical dictionary of suffrage artists which includes a number of artists who either came from or lived in Manchester and contributed to support the suffrage movement, you discuss Sylvia Pankhurst's work and iconic contributions to the icon icon sorry, I can't say that word, iconography of the suffrage movement. So Pankhurst studied at Manchester School of Arts in night from 1900 to 1902. Uh, she won the award for Best Female Student, which is wonderful. So how does Sylvia Pankhurst, her art depicts women? And is there any way you could relate to the work of Swinerton and Dacre? Um, well, yes, of course, uh, Sylvia had uh, studied at Manchester and then went on to the Royal College of Art in London. And she did then manage, she got a scholarship to study for a short time in Italy. I mean, she went to Venice, but had nothing like the extensive training abroad that uh, Swinerton and Dacre had. Yet yeah. um, she was the main designer for the militant uh, suffragettes uh, for the WSPU, uh, producing a wide range of images to adorn everything from China, as you mentioned, uh, yeah. with the, um, uh, the angel um, to uh, blotters and oh, oh, badges and everything. And her first image, in fact, for the WSPU had been for a membership card, which shows working class women um, you know, saying, come and join us. Uh, and there, there they are with their children and uh, pails and brushes and uh, mops. Um, for really, it was with working class women that Sylvia's uh, interests always lay. But uh, as the WSPU <coughs> through the 1906, 1907 or so, became increasingly keen to attract middle class members and their money, that was the important thing, um, oh. the image changed. And then the principal image she devised for the WSPU was this woman as an angel, and it was known as the Angel of Freedom. And this is on your uh, China, and also it was on um, the covers for the bound volumes of Votes for mm -hmm. Women and on a whole load of other things. And the image had actually been derived from uh, one um, made uh, about 1885 by Walter Crane. I mean, does he count as pre-Raphaelite or sort of? Uh, yeah, sort and, of. Because <laughs> uh, it was his angel of freedom and she uh, had been brought up on, I imagine, on Walter Crane's mm. uh, books as all uh, social reforming uh, children, I mean, children in social reforming nurseries were. Um, and, uh, but uh, she uh, added to uh, um the angel, there are also uh, prison bars and broken prisoner chains. 
So that was her, her take on it. And another image she used was a woman as a sower, that is a sower of seed, uh, not a material. So there's the woman, she's broadcasting seeds, laying seeds for the future. So that was another of her images. Uh, but in the early years of the WSPU, I mean, this is about, I think about 1906, uh, Sylvia did go on a journey around Britain painting working women. And mm. it was some of these paintings that were shown in Manchester in 2018. And at that time, they were owned by Sylvia's uh, 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 granddaughter, great grand, no, granddaughter. And uh, some were um, subsequently acquired by Tate Britain. Um, so they're now part of that collection. But mm. uh, Sylvia didn't uh, follow a career as an artist. I mean, she might have liked to, but she was uh, overwhelmingly interested in politics and social reform. Mm. And uh, that was uh, how she spent the rest of her, her life, really. Mm. Yeah, those depictions of working class women in there working environments around especially around the north of England are really really fascinating depictions and mentioning actually you mentioning this with Walter Crane it just reminds me as well about um both politics and art wise how William Morris was sort of an inspiration for Sylvia as well who is you know we can we can put in the broader pre-Raphaelite sort of world um, um and so coming back um I mentioned earlier the rock, the Rockaby Venus. So coming back to the idea of the suffragettes actually attacking artworks, destroying or creating new meanings for these artworks, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, interestingly, Manchester Art Gallery was also the site of an attack by three members of the WSPU suffragettes who targeted actually it was a number of Pre-Raphaelite paintings. So could you tell us which works were these? Who were the women involved? And why did they choose these artworks specifically to um, yeah, attack? Yes, well, it's uh, really interesting because this protest in Manchester Art Gallery um, is the first of its kind. Um, it was uh, only a year later, uh, a whole year later, that uh, uh, Mary Richardson attacked the Rokeby Venus in the National Gallery and also uh, George Clausen's uh, um, painting Primavera, um, which was uh, in the Royal Academy, uh, was attacked in the summer exhibition um, in 1914, as well as various other um, gallery attacks. But the fir very first one was in Manchester, and it was the 3rd of April, 1913, mm -hmm. which was a significant date because it was the day that Mrs. Pankhurst had just been sentenced and caught in London to three years hard labour for inciting damage. This related to a bomb that had uh, gone off in a house that was being built for Lord Lloyd George um, in, uh, in uh, Surrey. And although there was no suggestion that she'd done it herself, she had uh, subsequently claimed uh, it for uh, a success for the WSPU. Hmm. And uh, so three members of the Manchester um, WSPU decided to make their protest and they chose to protest in uh, the Manchester Gallery and they waited till, now this is interesting, they waited till just before nine o'clock. The gallery chose to close late. I haven't uh, checked up whether this was every night or whether it was a Friday night mm. and uh, it was open late. <clears throat> but anyway, it was just before nine o'clock at night. Um, mm. They chose what was described as, the, I mean, in the press reports, it just described it as the big room of the art gallery uh, in which to make their protest. So mm. presumably this was one with the most pictures in, 
I, uh, I don't know exactly what the layout then was, but the walls were hung with pictures by Leighton, um, by G.F. Watts, that was his Paolo and Francesca, Millet, oh. The Flood, which shows a baby being uh, carried away in a cradle, mm. Rossetti, Astarte Syriaca, and Holman, one by Holman Hunt, and Ben Jones's Sibylla Delphica, um, the Sibyl of Delphi. Mm. And hardly surprising, all these, and they were large pictures, were all by male artists. Mm. And uh, be before they were restrained, uh, the, the women did manage to damage um, a, a great number of the paintings, a glass of great number of paintings, but it was only two canvases that required slight repair. I mean, so there wasn't too much damage, but I don't think they were um, holding back. Uh, oh. The women were uh, interesting. One of them was a Manchester University graduate called Lillian Forrester, and she already had a, um, a conviction. So she received a three month sentence. Another oh. one, who, I mean, it's something of a mystery. She was called Evelyn Manesta, but uh, nobody, has, as far as I know, has been able to trace who this is. I mean, whether her name was a, a pseudonym, or, I don't know. And she was described mm -hmm. as a governess, and she received one month. And the third one, who was a working-class woman called Annie Briggs, uh, mm -hmm. who was acquitted, uh, it was decided she hadn't actually done any of the damage. And now, actually, the, these sentences are really very light for the kind of damage um, mm. that was caused. And, and I mean, it wasn't really a deterrent. <laughs> so next, the following year, when uh, these attacks became so much more pre prevalent, uh, prevalent mm. and uh, galleries were really on high alert to all the damage was done. I mean, damage was done in um, not only the Royal Academy and the National Gallery, the National Portrait Gallery, a portrait of uh, Thomas Carlyle was really quite badly damaged and one of Henry James mm. and uh, the British Museum there were glasses uh, you know um, cabinets were smashed there um, the sentences then became uh, very much harsher mm. and I do wonder uh, um, I mean I may say that uh, the glass was repaired and uh, um, I think it was about 85 pounds worth of glass I mean it was probably quite a lot at the time so they certainly um, made the mark, as it were, and mm. these canvases um, weren't too weren't badly damaged. But I do wonder what um, artists such as Swinnerton Dacre thought of such protests. Interestingly mm. enough, I've never seen any comment, uh, contemporary comment at the time from women artists, <clears throat> you know, protesting or supporting. Mm. I can't believe that they were really very supportive of it, but mm. uh, anyway... <laughs> that was Manchester had the accolade of being the first uh, uh, gallery to be attacked in this way. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating as a kind of form of protest. I have obviously a great reverence for art as an art historian, but having recently gone to exhibitions that are entirely women artists' work, it is such a different experience you realise and how used you're just kind of used to seeing galleries with predominantly male artists' work and how different mm. it makes you feel. So, yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's a very interesting kind of thing to see attacking Melas's work. So I have to say, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for being so generous with your time. Um, I've asked you so many questions. I really appreciate it. Is there anything finally that I haven't asked you, a comment you wanted to make, or a topic that you haven't I haven't asked you about you wanted to discuss? 
Well, there was just one thing, and it's not a, yeah, a question or anything. It's just that um, I do think uh, I just like to say the epitaph that uh, is on Annie Swinnerton's grave in Hailing mm. Island. I just think it's so lovely. It's uh, on her grave. It just says, I have known love and the light of the sun. Isn't that lovely? Oh, wow. That is beautiful. Thank you. I'd never heard that. That is such a lovely, yeah. Uh, yeah I really like that and really kind of a, a reference also I suppose to to her art as well and that so thank you so much Elizabeth Crawford for your time today and this has been our special episode for International Women's Day and it's just sparked so many topics in my brain I want to go away and think about so thank you so much we really appreciate it fine thank you Hannah mm-hmm.